Well, in our last session, um, we're going to address um, one more objection that Moses had. We've looked at three objections. When Moses called him to that great, when God called Moses to that great purpose, he said, who am I? And we looked at who we are as children of God, your true identity. And he said, God, who are you? We looked at God, whose name is Yahweh, I am, and how he is the God who fills in our blanks. We looked at his third objection, which is suppose they don't believe me. And we determined and declared that we are not going to allow our past stand in the way of our future. Amen? Amen. And we're going to do what God has called us to do. But there was a fourth objection. This one wasn't actually in the form of a question, but a statement. And the fourth objection in Exodus 4, verse 10, Moses said, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth and who makes him deaf or mute and who gives him sight and makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will teach you what to say. And later he said it, I will show you what to do. So Moses was so insecure at this point in his life, he could barely even speak. And he'd forgotten all that God had did to prepare him for this very moment. He'd forgotten about the fact that he was saved when all the boy babies were being killed, that that God placed him in the Pharaoh's house so he could learn the Egyptian ways. He'd forgotten all that. And Stephen tells us in Acts that he was a man of powerful speech and action. But he had allowed his past to mess him up so bad that he couldn't even hardly speak at this point. And he was begging God to send someone else to go. You know, I know a little bit about how Moses felt. Because when God came to me about 25 years ago and told me what my life was, the change that was going to happen in my life with the writing and the speaking, I argued. Anybody argue with God when you felt God calling you to something? I'm like, God, are you kidding? I was so felt so insecure. Yes, I was learning those verses about who I was in Christ, but I felt so insecure. The thought of standing up in front of anybody and saying anything just terrified me to death. I said, Lord, you've got to be kidding me. Do you remember me hiding in the closet? Do you remember how afraid I was to talk to anybody as a kid? I went to my first job interview at Shoney's. <laughs> and I got the job. And I was so afraid I didn't show up the first day. I didn't show up at all. That's how insecure I felt. I didn't even show up to my first job. I said, God, you're calling me to do what? And to write? Lord, have you forgot about the spelling train? Now, let me tell you about spelling train. Okay, when I went off to first grade, I thought, okay, now people are going to like me. I'm going to have friends. My brother was pretty smart. He was five years older than me, and he did well in school, and I thought, this is my time. I remember going off. I remember what I had on the first day of school. I had a green dress, little blue polka dot sleeves. I had my little lunchbox, my new crayons. I was so excited. But there was a problem with first grade. See, back then, kindergarten was optional. I went to a little church kindergarten, but I went off to first grade. Kindergarten then, you just colored and played and took a little nap on a mat you made with masking tape and leather. (laughs) But first grade, you had to write and you had to read words and spell. And this was a problem for me because I couldn't spell a lick. We had this thing called the spelling train, you see, and we had to memorize these flashcards, these spelling words, and flashcards are of the devil, (laughs) y'all. They are, and what would happen is the teacher would line our chairs up like a train, 
And she would be the chief engineer holding up those flashcards. And if you missed that spelling word, you had to go to the caboose. Well, I spent first grade in the caboose. I could not spell to save my life. And she would keep me after class with Mike. And I wasn't too smart, but I knew what it meant to be kept after class with Mike so she could help me. I really had trouble with the, with the word T-H-E. I could never get that word. And so she made me wear a little name tag for two weeks, and it said T-H-E on it. And people would say, my friends would say, what's wrong with you? Are you stupid? Is your name V? Are you dumb? Can't you spell? And I learned how to spell T-H-E in first grade. But I learned something else too. There is something wrong with me. And I am just not as smart as everybody else. You know, the truth was I really wasn't stupid. I just couldn't spell. I still can't spell. My son's a writer in Chicago, and he can't spell either. <laughs> I told my son, I said, when, when he was having trouble spelling, I said, it is a very uncreative person who can only spell a word one way. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> but I said, Lord, you remember I can't spell, and now you want me to write with words. And then he invented spell checker and we were friends again. But you know, I've decided I'm not going to let my weaknesses stand in the way of my God-given calling. I still make mistakes spelling. I mean, it is worth signing up for my blog to try to find my mistakes. When I make mistakes, there are women with the gift of discouragement that will email me often and tell me when I mess up. Oh, let me tell you one, though. This is, this is just fun. Okay, I was writing about Elijah in this blog, and I wrote about how there were, Elijah was by a ravine. God had sent him to a ravine during a drought, during a famine, and how God invented fast food, and he took um, the ravens, would drop him off meat, and he had the water by the stream, and then the stream dried up, and so he sent Elijah to this widow, and he goes to the widow, and he tells her to make him a little cake of bread, and she said, well, I, I'm here picking up sticks. I'm going to make one more meal for my son and I, and then we're going to die because I only have enough flour in my bowl and enough jar, uh, oil in my jar for one more meal. And Elijah said, you go and make me a little cake and your bowl will not run out of flour and your jar will not run out of oil till this famine is over. So she did exactly that and she went back and her bowl was full of flour again and her jar was full of oil. And then I wrote this sentence. Elijah kept the widow's pantry mysteriously stocked said, I left the R out of pantry. <laughs> Elijah kept the widow's panty mysteriously stocked. Yes. It went out to thousands of people around the world. And my son in his advertising agency, and he sent it to all his people that he works with. My mother is a Christian writer. <laughs> but I have decided that I'm not going to let my shortcomings, what I see as a shortcoming, stand in the way of what God called me to do. And I said, God, this one's on you. I'm doing my best here. I figured a lot of people needed a good laugh that day. David said this. David was talking to God and he said, I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. When he said, your works are wonderful, I know that full well, he wasn't talking about the sun and the moon and the stars. He was talking about himself. Your works in creating me is it's wonderful. I know that full well. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are wonderfully made. 
Peter says this in 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Turn to your neighbor and say, you have given, God's given you everything you need. Listen, if God didn't put it in you, then you don't need it to do what he's called you to do. If God didn't make you tall, you don't need to be tall to do what God's called you to do. If God didn't make you eloquent, then you don't need to be eloquent to do what God's called you to do. If God didn't make you a good speller, then you don't need to be a good speller to do what God's called you to do. If God didn't make you the apple of your daddy's eye, then you don't need to be the apple of your daddy's eye to do what God has called you to do. God has given you everything you need to do what he has called you to do. Now, how do we come up to to the conclusion that we're not good at something? We're not good enough at something. I think we come to that conclusion by comparing ourselves to someone that we think is. And I think that's how Moses came up with the idea that I'm not a good speaker because he, in his mind, he was comparing himself to other people that he thought were good speakers, like his cousin, Aaron, or his brother, Aaron. Comparing ourselves to other people. And I will tell you that the measuring stick will get you stuck. And comparison is one of the devil's tools. Tools that will stop your destiny more than anything I know of. And listen, we live in a comparison-saturated society. With Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You look at those pictures and you think, my life stinks. My kids look horrible. I could have had a better wedding. And, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, you're watching about somebody eating lunch in their fancy clothes with their friends and you're chewing on a carrot. I don't even mean a baby carrot. You got one of the big long ones out of the bag. You know, we just compare, compare, compare ourselves. But when we're comparing, we're comparing someone's highlight reel with what we've got going on backstage. And don't get me started on Christmas letters. I hate Christmas letters. Seriously. Tell you every wonderful thing that's happened in somebody's family. They don't tell you about mom upset because she gained 20 pounds. About the son getting suspended from school. You don't hear about that. It's all this just showing you the highlights. We need to stop comparing ourselves to other people. I remember about 25 years ago, I had my first speaking engagement at a very large church in Charlotte. I was scared to death. And the funny thing is, I was speaking on unshakable confidence in Christ. Isn't that not hilarious? <laughs> so I was scared to death. And, and I, uh, my mentor, Mary Marshall Young, the older woman I told you about last night, she was speaking at this luncheon in a very ritzy part of town. And she invited me to come with her. So I met her there, but then I didn't even get to sit with her. I had to sit with these ladies I didn't even know. And I felt so inadequate sitting with these fancy ladies. I mean, they had on their shoes and purses that matched in my little Walmart shoes. I mean, I just did not feel comfortable. And so they put me at this table with ladies I didn't know. They all knew each other and they were talking. And I was listening to them and they were talking about the speaker that they had just heard two weeks prior at the same church where I was going to be speaking in two weeks. And they were using words like, he was anointed. Powerful man of God. The extra D on the end. You know how they do. 
he was so prophetic and just on and on about how great he was. And my little tea sandwich got stuck about right here. And I did not tell them I was going to be the speaker at the next event. Because you know what? At that point, I did not think I was. And Satan was just saying to me, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are going and speaking to those ladies? That other speaker came from all the way across country. You're not even coming from across town, you and your little Walmart shoes. <laughs> Who do you think you are? And you know what? I believed him. I got in my car. I'm being honest with you. I'll, if anything, I'm honest. My husband says to me, I cannot believe you tell people the things you tell. But I got in my car and I drove over to that church. I walked into that front desk and I said, I want to buy a tape. This is when we had cassettes. I want to buy a cassette tape of that speaker that you had two weeks ago. Gave him my $5, got that cassette, and I got in my car and braced myself for an hour of power. <laughs> I put in that tape, nothing. I pushed fast forward, nothing. I flipped the tape over, nothing. Pushed fast forward, nothing. And that tape was blank. And I had an hour of power with God. And he said, Sharon, you do not need to know what that man said to those women two weeks ago. He said, I gave him a message. He said, I can speak through a donkey. I can speak through a fisherman. And I can speak through you. And you need to not worry about what that man said to him. You need to speak to an audience of one. And don't you worry about those ladies. So the next time Satan said to me, who do you think you are? I said, I'll tell you who I am. I am a child of God. I am anointed and appointed by the Holy Spirit. I am chosen. I am dearly loved. I am the bride of Christ. I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And who are you? <laughs> Comparison will get you stuck. Get you stuck. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Paul said, I will glory in my weakness, for when I am weak, then he is strong. You know, if somebody says, you know, God's called them to something and they're not worried about it at all, and they're like, I got this, I'm like, you better be worried. <laughs> because when we know we can't do it on our own strength, we have to depend on God, right? Yes. Let's stop comparing ourselves to other people. Stop comparing ourselves. But what do you do? I'm going to change gears a little bit. We're going to leave the burning bush for a little bit. What do you do when you have that argument going on in your head, when the enemy is attacking you? Do you know that the enemy has a, a plan of attack to bring you down? He most certainly does. And if he's got a plan of attack, we need a plan of attack. Amen? So let's look at four steps. How do we overcome the lies of the enemy with the truth of God? How do we do that? It says in, in 2 Corinthians 10.3, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That is our battle plan. Taking every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. So these are the rules of engagement. First, we've got to realize the enemy's true identity. Your real enemy is not your mom. It's not your daddy. It's not the man who hurt you or the friend who betrayed you. The real enemy who wants to bring you down is the devil himself. 
He is the one that wants to bring you down. He knows that you've been justified, that you were sanctified, that you were holy and set apart, that you were dearly loved, that you have the power of the Holy Spirit, that you've been anointed and appointed to go and bear fruit. He knows all that. And his job is to keep you from believing it. His job is to keep you from believing it. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. He cannot kill you if you've had eternal life. But he can certainly steal your jewel right here and now. He can rob you of your earthly destiny, what God's got planned for you to do, by keeping you from believing the truth. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It is a spiritual war that we are fighting. Now, I know that you all remember what happened on 9-11-2001. And I don't know what you were doing on that day. I was out taking a walk that morning. Remember on the East Coast, it was a beautiful day, blue skies, taking a walk, husband off to work, son off to school, just an ordinary day. I watched in the house, and I don't usually watch television during the day, but the phone was ringing, and it was a friend, and she said, have you seen what's happening? And I said, no, and I turned it on, and I watched as you watched in horror all day as we saw those planes that fell, flew into the Twin Towers and flew into the Pentagon and watched as those, those towers crumbled. And as I sat there watching that, I said, Lord, we never saw this coming. And he said, that's always how the enemy attacks, when you least see it coming. We've got to realize who the enemy is and be on guard. Now, let me take you to another day, two years before that. Y2K. Remember Y2K? <laughs> oh, yeah. When Charlotte is, Charlotte's a banking town and everybody was just going bananas. You know, what's going to happen when the computer flips over to the new millennium and people were buying safes and putting them in their houses and getting money out of the bank and bolting the safes down and people were going to Chick-fil-A and getting these big mayonnaise jars and hiding food and burying it in the ground. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> and then on New Year's Eve, we, in our neighborhood, all the Christians got together and held hands and prayed as the millennium clicked over. And what happened? Nothing, Nothing happened. <laughs> we were ready and we were prepared. Now look at those two days. When we least expected it, evil invaded our country. When we were prepared, nothing happened. We need to be prepared, realize the enemy's true identity, and then be prepared. You know, the devil has many names um, in the Bible. He's called the liar, the adversary, the prince of the power of the air, the father of lies, the devil, the great serpent, the great serpent, and the deceiver. And that word deceiver... A deceiver is someone who presents a lie so that it sounds true. And then he can take something true and twist it so it sounds like it's not true. That's what a deceiver does. And Satan is not very creative, but he's very effective. And he does the same thing over and over and over again. He's got one weapon, and that's all. And that weapon is lies. It's the same thing he did with Eve he does with us. If we go back to the garden in Genesis Chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, serpent came into the garden. And remember, Adam and Eve had everything, right? Perfect world they lived in. Communed with God, walked with God in the cool of the evening. Eve was the only woman in the world who ever had a perfect husband. Eve had a, Adam had a perfect wife, didn't even have a mother-in-law. I mean, you know, life was good. Life was good. 
But then in chapter 3, it says, now the serpent. The serpent comes into the garden and he says to Eve, did God really say that you must not eat of any tree of the garden? Caused her to doubt God. And then he just flat out denied God. He said, you will not certainly die. And then he caused her to doubt God's justice. He said, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Basically, the enemy was saying to her, you think you've got it good here in the garden. Listen, if you do this one thing he's told you not to do, then you'll be happy. You know, that's how he still works today. Whatever you don't have, he's going to tell you you'll be happy if you had it. That's how he works. If you're, mar- if you're not married, he'll say, you would be happy if you were married. If you are married, you would be happy if you were married to someone else. <laughs> if you have children, if you don't have children, you'll be happy when you have children. You got them? You'll be happy when those kids are gone. You got a big house, you'd be happy if you had a smaller house you didn't have to take care of. If you had a little house, you'd be happy if you had a big house. Whatever it is, ladies, whatever it is you don't have, he's going to come to you and tell you that you'll be happy if you have that thing. You're working in the office and your husband's not appreciating you at home. And he'd say, you'd be happy if you had that man. That's how he works. That's how he works. That's how he works with her. And as soon as she disobeyed God, she ate that fruit. That shame just rotted in her stomach. And it's the same thing he'll do with us. We've got to realize the enemy and realize those lies. Let's look at this quote. The greatest battle that was ever won was accomplished by the apparent death of the victor. Without even a word of rebuke to his adversary, the prince of this world was judged and the principalities and powers were disarmed, not by a confrontational warfare, but by the surrender of Jesus on the cross. You don't have to pick a fight with the devil. Every time you believe God's truth over his lie, you win. Every time you obey God instead of the devil's suggestion, you win. You don't have to pick a fight with him. You just obey God and believe God. Realize the enemy's true identity. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We never have to be afraid of the devil. We never have to be afraid of him. He has no power over you, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. It says in Romans eight thirty seven, In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love that verse. But listen, if, God, if we didn't have anything to conquer, then God wouldn't have said we are more than conquerors, right? We're going to have things in our lives that we need to conquer. And we are more than conquerors through Jesus. We don't need to be afraid of him. So the first step is we need to realize the enemy's true identity. Not someone to be afraid of, but we just need to realize that there is a spiritual battle going on and who it's against. The second thing we need to realize, to recognize, is the devil's lies. We've got to recognize the lies in, our, in ourselves. And, you know, sometimes we have been telling our lives so long that it feels like the truth. We just feel like it's who we are. When nothing could be further from the truth. Does anybody remember, it's been quite some time ago, there was a movie um, called The Patriot with Mel Gibson. Any hands? A few of you saw that. Well, that movie with Mel Gibson was taped near Charlotte. So a lot of Charlotteans went to see if they could be extras in the movie. 
Well, on my street, one of my friends um, named Mike, he lost his leg in his 20s to cancer, and he thought, you know, I'm going to go see if I can be an extra. I've already lost a leg. I'd be great for those war scenes. <laughs> so um, he went to try out, and, but he took his whole family. Well, they didn't pick Mike, but they picked his little son, Michael. He was nine at the time. And so Michael was the stand-in for one of Mel Gibson's sons, Samuel. So every time you saw this Samuel running through the woods or anything where it wasn't a close-up shot of his face, it was my little neighbor, Michael. And so Michael had wore his hair in those long extensions and wore little knickers, and he got an education in how movies were made. And so when it came out, we all wanted to see it. And it was a very bloody movie because it's a war movie. And at one point, Mel Gibson, someone had killed one of his other sons, and he just went ballistic. I mean, acting like what I understand he's acting like lately. But he just really went after one of these soldiers, and he just pummeled him and pummeled him, and blood was going everywhere. And then he threw a hatchet, and it landed right in the middle of a guy's head and split his head open. And, and I was just covering my eyes. And we were watching this with Michael, who was, you know, played in the movie. And Michael says, Miss James, that's not real. He said, that man walked around with a hatchet in his head for three days. <laughs> he said, it's not real. So what was the difference between me watching that and Michael watching that? He knew the truth. It didn't bother him a bit. When we know God's truth, those lies will not bother us. But ladies, in order to know the truth, we've got to get in God's word. We've got to get in God's word and know what that truth is. Robert McGee says this, One of the biggest steps that we can take toward consistently glorifying Christ and walking in peace and joy with our Heavenly Father is to recognize the deceit which had held us captive. Satan's lies distort our true perspective, warp our thoughts, and produce painful emotions. If we cannot identify these lies, then it is very likely that we will continue to be defeated by them. We've got to recognize what those lies are. 2 Corinthians 2.1 that says, We are not unaware of the devil's schemes. Note that word, schemes. Ephesians 6.11 says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So schemes in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, what does schemes mean? It means a step-by-step progressive plan to bring you down. Does that make you mad a little bit? He's got a step-by-step progressive plan to bring you down. So we need a step-by-step progressive plan to bring him down. And it begins with recognizing who the real enemy is and then recognizing what those lies are. He knows exactly what to whisper to you. He can't read your mind, but he can watch you. He can know exactly where you feel insecure. He can know exactly where you feel left out. He looks and he watches where you feel insignificant, where you feel worthless. He can watch you. And then that's the lies he whispers in your ear. It sounds like you, certainly feels like you, and you think it's you, but it's really him. And the next thing you know, you're telling it to yourself. You hear it, and you tell it to yourself. You're worthless. I am so worthless. You can't do anything right. I can't do anything right. And that's how he works. 
got to recognize what those lies are. He crouches around like a roaring lion. But you know something about this lion? He ain't got no teeth. All I can do is roar at you. Just like that Goliath when he met up with David. You know, the only thing Goliath did was yell at him. That's all he did. Taunting them. David goes, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that dares taunt the armies of the living God? The God who protected me from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion. He'll defeat this enemy. That Goliath probably had a disease. He was so big, he couldn't even run fast. But all he did was yell. And they were scared and defeated. That's all the devil is. He's just yelling at you. Whispering lies to you. You got that rock in your hand, right? Just need one. And Jesus is that rock. D.L. Moody said this. The best way to show that a stick is crooked... It's not to argue about it or to spend time denouncing it, but to lay a straight stick alongside it. So you want to know something's a lie in your life? You just lay the word of God right beside it and see if it lines up. Now, I know a lot of you probably don't know a lot of scripture. Maybe you just came to Christ, maybe even today. And this is not in the Bible. It's just a little something I do. So this is not the gospel. But if you're not sure if something is a lie or not, just add in Jesus' name to the end of that thought and see how it fits with you. See how it sits in your soul. I am so mad at that man. When he comes home, he is going to get it from me in Jesus' name. (laughs) (laughs) I am so stupid. I can't do anything right. I am just a worthless piece of trash in Jesus' name. Doesn't feel right, does it? No. I have made a terrible mistake, but I ask God to forgive me. And I know I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In Jesus' name. Does that feel good to your soul? So that's a little little something. A little sharing thing here. Recognize those lies. Recognize. Add in Jesus' name to the end of it and see how it fits. But you know what? We've got to pay attention to what we're thinking about. Pay attention to what's going on in that pretty little head of yours. What are, your think- what are you thinking about? Now, my husband... His alarm clock, we sleep together, as I tell you this story, but his alarm clock goes off at 5.30 every morning. He gets up, he takes a shower, he shaves with an electric razor, he blows his nose, he makes other noises I am not going to go into at this time. He puts his keys and his change in his pocket, and then when he leaves, we have an alarm system, so it beeps when he opens and closes the door. And you know what? I don't hear anything. I don't hear a thing. Until about an hour later when my alarm clock goes off. And we are in the same room. Why is that? Because I've gotten so accustomed to that, I don't even recognize it. I don't even hear it. It's like if you have ever moved into a house or a condominium or an apartment, and the first night you hear a train go by. Anybody? Or maybe here you hear an airplane go by. And you think, I will never sleep again. Anybody? But what happens? After about three or four days, you don't hear it anymore, right? You get used to it. That's the same way it is with the lies that we tell ourselves. We can get so used to telling ourselves those lies over and over, we don't even know we're doing it. So I want you to pay attention to the thoughts you're thinking. Do they line up with Scripture about who you really are, about about life in general? Do they line up with Scripture? And if they don't, then you need to quit thinking them. David was talking to himself, and he said in Psalm 57, 8, Awake, my soul. He's talking to himself, right? Basically, he's saying, wake up, my soul. Pay attention. 
And we need to pay attention. Look for any thoughts that you're having that do not line up with the word of God. Number one, realize the enemy's true identity. Number two, recognize those lies. And then number three, once you recognize that you're thinking a lie, then you reject the lie. You simply say, that is not true. Reject it. Don't play with it. Don't think about it. Just say, that is not true. I was reading in, in um, Ephesians 6, you know that verse about putting on the armor of God. The helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, feet shod with the gospel of peace. And then it says to take up the shield of faith. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, I've got two little shields right here in my hand. The shield of faith. So in my home, in the privacy of my own home, when I have a thought that is not of God, I will often hold up my shield and say, that's not true. If you're looking in my windows, you might see me going around like this in my house. <laughs> Let's practice that. Get your shield up. Okay. You are so stupid. That's not true. You can't do anything right. That's not true. You are worthless. That's not true. Now, I'm going to come back in a year and see if y'all walking around like this and see, see if y'all got that. Stop it. Just stop that thought right when it comes into the threshold of your mind. When I was a young married um, woman, been married 35 years. I think I mentioned that last night. And um, we had traveling um, door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesmen. They're probably against the law now, but we had those back then. And I made a big mistake one day when one came to my house. What did I do? I let him in the house. It took me about an hour to get that guy to leave. He had this little trash on the floor and talking about bed bugs and mites. And, and I finally got him to leave. And I was leaning against the door. And I said, what in the world just happened? And God said, you let him in. Every spiritual battle is won or lost at the threshold of the mind. So you just shut it off as soon as you get it. Don't play with it. Don't play with that sticky sand. You just shut that. Shut it off right when you have it because it tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, you have divine power to demolish strongholds, right? Dynamite. You've got dynamite power to demolish strongholds and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Beth Moore said, one reason Christians remain in bondage to the lies of the enemy is because they swat at them like mosquitoes rather than blast them with the dynamite of God's truth. You've got divine power. The word of God and prayer. Nitroglycerin. Put them together and you've got the power. Now, the word stronghold, you've got power to demolish stronghold. I looked this up in the Greek. Very interesting what stronghold means. E-C-H-O is the Greek word for stronghold. So what is that in our language? Echo. A stronghold is something that's been echoing, echoing, echoing in your life over and over again. Sometimes a stronghold is formed by one traumatic event like a rape or seeing a violent act. You can have a stronghold because of that. But usually it's from an echo time and time again. But you've got the power to defeat it. A, a stronghold is anything that you're holding on to that ends up taking hold of you. Okay? Now, when my son was in high school, we took a trip out west. We flew to Nevada and rented a car and went to a lot of the national parks, put 2,500 miles on the car in 10 days. And our last stop was Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Anybody been to Jackson Hole? Just a few. 
Well, this is cowboy country, and I'm from Charlotte. So one night we decided we were going to go to a rodeo. Never been to a rodeo before. And we stuck out like a sore thumb. I mean, they had on cowboy boots. We had on tennis shoes. They had on the big cowboy hats. We had on baseball hats. I was chewing, chewing gum. They were chewing, chewing tobacco. I mean, you know, we just really stuck out. And I watched as they rode the bulls and they raced around the cans. But then they did the calf roping contest. And that bothered me a little bit. So what would happen, even if you've never seen one, you um, probably can imagine, there's two doors. One door, did it just get dimmer in here? Is it, okay, I'm getting romantic or something. So, so one door opens and the little calf runs out, right? And that calf knows that the exit is right back there and he's running as fast as he can to get out of that place. So his door opens and then the cowboys opens and he is on his horse and he's riding behind the calf, throwing that lasso. His goal is to throw it around his neck and throw him back in the dirt. I didn't like that. And sometimes a little calf would get away and I'd clap. <laughs> My husband said, quit doing that. They're going to kick us out. And besides, he could be at McDonald's. He has a good life. <laughs> so as I was watching it, <laughs> somebody just got that. Um, God said, I want you to pay attention because you're watching a great example of what it means to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because, see, sometimes you can have a, shot, a, a thought that just comes out of your mind, don't, you know, just runs out, just this thought, a, a jealous thought or an angry thought, a thought that's not of God. And what do you do when that thought comes out of the shoot of your mind? You act like that cowboy who rides up behind that thought and lassos it with the Word of God and throws it back in the dirt where it came from. And the sooner you do it, the better. Taking every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ, lassoing it with the Word of God. You know, we looked at Eve and how she lost that battle with the devil by believing his lies. And Jesus had a very similar one that he won in the wilderness. So how did Jesus do it? He replaced the lies with the truth, exactly what we're talking about right now. Satan came to him in the wilderness and he said, If you're hungry, why don't you just turn this stone into bread? And then Jesus said to him, Man shall not live by bread alone. So he replaced, he recognized the lie and he replaced it with truth. Then he took him up to a high place and he showed him all the kingdoms in an instant. I will give you authority over all you see if you worship me. And Jesus said, it is written. He rejected the lie and he replaced it with truth. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. Took scripture right out of context. And Jesus said, be gone. It is written, do not put the Lord your God through a test. And then another gospel, it says that Jesus, as when he said, be gone to the devil, he left, but it says, he left for a more opportune time. Because, see, the devil's always looking for an opportune time to bring you down. That's why we got to be on the alert and why we need to pay attention and be ready. we got to be armed and dangerous, girls. Armed and dangerous, right? With the word of God. When it comes to the devil, you don't have to outshoot him or outmuscle him. You just have to outtruth him. Out-truth him. 
When you reject the lie and you replace it with the truth, then you will be transforming your mind like we've been talking about all weekend. Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because like I said yesterday, you cannot act differently than you think. So in order to be transformed, first you have to transform the way you think. Realize the enemy's true identity, recognize the lie, reject the lie, and then replace the lie with truth. When you do that, you will be transforming your mind. And not only is this just a spiritual principle, it is an actual physiological process that happens in your brain. Because as you have thoughts and experiences, they form creases in your brain. When you transform your mind with the word of God, it is making new thought patterns and new creases in your brain. Let's watch a little video about that. The human brain, made of approximately 100 billion neurons, the same number of stars that exist within our galaxy. The human brain monitors and regulates all of the body's actions and reactions. With over 5 trillion chemical operations occurring every second, and signals being transferred at speeds of over 260 miles per hour, our brain is rapidly analyzing and responding to all of the sights, sounds, and smells all around us. Now, because we are all born slaves to sin, our mind has been programmed to behave out of selfish desire. The way we think, dream, reason, and act are limited to the ways of this world. Now consider the facts for a moment. For every behavior we experience, our brain creates a neurological pathway. As behaviors are repeated, those pathways become increasingly more stable. Think of it this way. A single behavior maps out a dirt road in your brain, creating a basic pathway for your thoughts to travel. But as you repeat behaviors, your brain builds a highway, allowing for an increased volume and frequency of thoughts to move about resulting in your day-to-day -day actions. In order to change our behavior, we must reprogram our brain. It requires the deconstruction of existing highways and is a process that takes time. The Bible directs us to take every thought captive and to commit daily to the renewing of our mind through the power of God's Word. And in time, the result is the formation of an entirely new neurological roadmap, leading you to the life you were meant to live. Make sense? So as you get in God's word, you know, sometimes we tend to have our spiritual life and our physical life, our spiritual life and our, our sacred life and our secular life. Uh-uh. There's no division. As you live and move and have your being in God, it's all one. There's no division. And as you change yourself spiritually, it will change yourself, yourself physically. Change yourself physically. Renewing your mind, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, we can't close our session today without going back to Daryl Moses for, for just a minute. Um, you know, Moses did finally take that step of faith, didn't he? He continued to argue with God, and he begged God to send somebody else. And God said, well, 
Okay, what about Aaron? What about Aaron? He could speak for you. He's already on his way to meet you. Listen, God knew what Aaron, what Moses was going to say. Aaron had already left the day before this conversation started. And Aaron caused a, lot, caused a lot of trouble, didn't he? Caused a lot of trouble. But Moses did take those first steps of faith. And he was transformed. And he did become a mighty man of God. And sometimes, you know what? We just need to take that first step of faith. And some of you were thinking, you know, I haven't heard from God in a long time. And I really want him to tell me what to do next. But I want to challenge you. Maybe he's already told you to do something. And he's waiting for you to do that one thing he's already told you before he tells you step two. So if you're not hearing from him, go back and think, is there something he's already told me? So why should he tell you step two if you're not doing step one? You know what I mean? He's done that with me so many times. You do what I've told you to do first, and then I'll tell you what's next. He didn't lay it all out there. Have you noticed that about him? But Moses did move forward. His life was transformed. You know, notice at the very beginning, at the bush, God called Moses by name. Did you catch that? He said, Moses, Moses. And I believe today he's calling you by name. Shemika, Shemika. Jessica, Jessica. Cherie, Cherie. He calls you by name and he knows you by name. And he's calling you today. He's got a great and mighty plan. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived all that God's got planned for those who love him. And that is every one of you in this room. He has a plan and a purpose for you. He is the great I am. He is the bread to stave off every hunger. He's the living water to quench every thirst. He's the key that opens every door. He's the light that illuminates every path. He is the great I am, and he has a plan for you. He's never surprised by your present. He's never stymied by your past or worried about your future. He is the great I am who has a plan for you. Are you ready to believe that you are who God says you are? Are you ready? Amen? Are you ready to believe that God is who he says he is? Are you ready to take captive every thought? Are you ready to let go everything that holds you hostage to a less than life and take hold of all that Jesus Christ has taken hold of for you and put in you? Yes. Well, let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much for these few hours that we can come and spend in your word. Lord, we want to be women who are transformed by your power. Lord, we want to do mighty feats for you. Lord, I pray that um, you will continue to grow us in your spirit. That we'll be rooted in your words and we'll have branches that go far and high. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us the roadmap. We don't have to guess. We can get in your word and find out where we're going, what we need to do. Lord, I thank you that your will for us is not a necessarily a destination, but it is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, for the 18 women who accepted Christ in our last session together. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for those new sisters. Lord, I pray today that the seeds that have been sown will take deep root and bear great fruit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I close with you, I want to read you a little poem that's at the back of this book. You know, right now everybody's getting ready to graduate. And Dr. Seuss's little book, Oh, the Places You Will Go. How many have read that book, seen that book? It's kind of popular around graduation time. Well, I have my own little version of Oh, the Places You Will Go. 
So I'm going to close with this today. I borrowed a little bit from Dr. Seuss, not a whole lot. It says, congratulations, today is your day. The adventure of faith is but a yes away. You have smarts in your head. You have Christ in your heart. It's time to live bold. Take a step and just start. You're not on your own, so there's no need to fear. You're God's gal. So listen, so hear. You'll see opportunities all sounding real good. About some you'll say, I don't think I should. Others will come and tug at your heart. When the Spirit says yes, then it's time to start. You know who you are, a dear child of God. He said it. He meant it. It's not a facade. You know who he is, the omnipotent one. I am who I am. He said it. It's done. What if it's not a problem? Your past is just that. You're moving forward, so go grab your hat. Don't worry about life when you haven't a clue. God's got it. He'll do it. He'll show you what to do. Remember Jim Moses, who worried and fretted? He took along Aaron, which he later regretted. Oh, the places you'll go when you know who you are. When you trust in God, you will go far. So be your name Mary, Abby, or Shay. You're off to great places when you do it God's way. You will move mountains when you listen and pray. So say yes to God and be on your way. Amen.